Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Black Swan, we are exploring Jesus through the eyes of Mark's gospel. We are going to be looking at the reason why Jesus, who started off as a poor peasant from Nazareth, became one of the most influential figures in the Western world. I hope you enjoy. Welcome. It's wonderful that you all could be here today. This is such a wonderful event and a great way to end our series. Those of you who have been here throughout the whole year, you know that we have been working through this gospel since last September. It has been a whole year, and we are finally coming to the end, Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, of course, every year we do celebrate this, don't we? Right? Early week, Good Friday, Easter, so it might not seem like it's really all that special. But I will tell you that it is quite special for me personally. And the reason being, and no offense to any of you who are here just to hear the Requiem today, but generally speaking, on Easter, there are hundreds of people who come to the sanctuary who generally aren't here the other 51 days of the year. And so I don't really get to preach the way that I want to about this particular text because I usually have to preach to a lot of people who don't know that much about Christianity. But if you're here in the middle of August... Clearly, you feel that there's some reason why you want to be here. Either you want to hear beautiful music, or maybe, just maybe, you want to hear how this thing ends. And as you all know, those of you who have been here, throughout the year I've been throwing you some curveballs. We've been comparing the history of what we know happened around Jesus' life to the history that we find in the Gospels. Sometimes they match up, sometimes they don't. Sometimes you're angry with me, sometimes you find it interesting. But you know what? We've worked our way through And I want to reward you. And part of the reward is coming here and hearing this beautiful music. But part of it also is learning more about Jesus' story. And unfortunately, we have to start with the death first before we can get to the good part of resurrection. It's got to get worse before it gets better. And last week, we talked about Pilate's story. We discussed the idea of how Jesus, when he came before Pontius Pilate, the way it is portrayed in the Gospel of Mark, it's highly unrealistic. The reason being... Pilate was a very cruel man. He was a man who put many, many people to death without a trial. And therefore, we came to the conclusion that if Jesus was even put on trial, then it is highly unlikely that Pilate would have ever taken the time to speak to Jesus. But what we do know is that if Jesus was put to death, then it would have been Pontius Pilate who signed his death warrant. And the fact that Jesus was crucified, that actually tells us something very interesting about the crime of which Jesus is accused. The Roman government, it set aside crucifixion for only very extreme political crimes. You had to do one of four things in order to be crucified. It was treason, rebellion, sedition, and banditry. Those were your four options if you were going to be hung up on a cross. Jesus was accused of treason. Now, this entire year, we have been looking at this, and treason, let's just define it real quick so we all know what it is. It's, it's when you turn against your government, particularly when you betray and want to overturn the government. Now, does that sound like Jesus to you? Does that sound like something that he really wants to do is overturn the government? It may not seem like that at first, But let me explain to you why the crime of treason actually fits quite well with who Jesus was. 
So, throughout the year, we have talked about Jesus. He claimed that he was the what? He was the Messiah, right? And for those of you who've been here, what is the Messiah? What does that word technically mean? It means the anointed one. Very good. Thank you. So, this concept, the anointed one, what it comes from is this ancient tradition in the Middle East when a king would come to power during their coronation ceremony. They would come up and they would take oil, place it on the king's head, and that would indicate that the king was now in power. The Jews, they had no king at the time that Jesus was alive. They were under the rule of the Roman Empire, and many of them desired to have a king, a king who would free them from what they believed was slavery of the Roman Empire. And Jesus, by claiming that he was the Messiah, he is saying that he has kingly ambitions. But simply claiming that you were the Messiah, that was not enough to have you put to death in Jesus' day. You had to do just a little bit more to really get the government's attention because there were lots of people in Jesus' day who claimed to be the Messiah, and if they tried to put all of them to death, there would be no end to it. So you had to do something a little bit more, and you had to incite rebellion. That was very, very important. And Jesus did exactly that. When he goes into the temple and he overturns the tables of the money changers and the sellers of the sacrifices. Now, I've talked about this a lot in the last couple of weeks, but I'll go over it very briefly again. The temple, it is at the crest of the hill in Jerusalem. It's where Jews from all over the Mediterranean would come to worship and make sacrifices to God. And there was a whole industry that was built around selling these sacrifices and the aristocracy. The Jews who lived there, the upper crust, they benefited from this. So by going in, by turning over these tables, and by turning over the tables of the sacrifices and the money changers, he was inciting rebellion against this upper crust. Therefore, it is very important for you to understand, he was put to death for two reasons. It is not simply claiming to be the Messiah. It was that in combination with the fact that he went in and he disrupted the business transactions that were going on in the temple. We clear on that. Okay, good. It's also important for you to know that the Roman government was not the only government to utilize crucifixion. Crucifixion was used by the Persians, the Assyrians, the Scythians, the Indians, the Greeks. Lots of nations used crucifixion as a form of capital punishment. And the reason why is because it was cheap and it was public. All you needed was two planks of wood and some nails, and you could crucify someone. Usually, when they were crucifying somebody, how they did it was left up to the executioner. So sometimes the executioner would hang the person upside down. Sometimes they would be hooded. Most of the time, they were stripped naked. Very often it was the case that the person had actually been killed prior to even being placed on the cross. And so, in that sense, the cross was simply a display case for what had already taken place. The reason why the Romans became famous for crucifixion is because they made the process uniform. They made sure that all executioners were going to nail the hands and the feet to the crossbars. Now, Jesus... In the Gospel of Mark, what we just read, after being convicted of treason, he is flogged and then forced to carry his own cross to the place where he is to be crucified. This was common for all people who have been convicted 
of crucifixion. You had to carry your own cross, and it tells us that Jesus was unable to do so the entire distance. This is probably because of blood loss, or it could have been that he was not strong enough. We don't entirely know. But what we do know is, according to the Gospel of Mark, a man named Simon of Cyrene was asked to help him to get all the way there. Upon being hoisted up in the air, Jesus lasted for about six hours before he cried out his last words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is here, at this point in the Gospel, at Jesus' death, that the Gospels diverge from what we know to be historically true about crucifixion. Now, what I'm about to tell you, I've thrown you all some curveballs all year. I can tell you right now, this one for many of you will be the hardest one to hear. So, as I always say, I'm going to put my disclaimer out there so you don't crucify me. I'm going to say, this is information. You can take it for what it's worth. You don't have to trust it. You don't have to use it. But I feel that you should have it. So, according to the gospel, what happens is Jesus is put up on the cross. When he dies, he is removed, and then he is taken and put in a tomb. Now, if you study the history of crucifixion, what you find is that the governments performed this type of execution for one particular reason. They wanted the public to know that rebellion, under any circumstances, was not going to be tolerated. The entire point of hoisting somebody up there in the air is they wanted to deter other people from engaging in the same behaviors. And so, what they would do is, they would make sure that when somebody was crucified, you were going to do it in a public place where lots of people could see it. They wanted you to see the crucifixion as you were going about your daily activities. And so, Jesus, when he carries his cross... He actually ends up going to a hillside right outside of Jerusalem where everybody going about their daily activities could have seen it. Now, this place is known as Golgotha. It's also known as the place of the skull. And the reason why it's called the place of the skull, you can see this photo right here, is because they believed that there was literally a skull inside the rock face. But some archaeologists say that that's not entirely right. That's not why it was called the place of the skull. The reason why it was called the place of the skull is because this hillside was literally littered with human skulls. And the way that those skulls got there is that after the person being crucified had died, they were left there on the cross to decompose. The entire point of crucifixion was to leave the person up there for as long as as possible, so that other people walk by and said, I don't want to be like that guy. What most Christians do not realize is that of all the documentation we have from the Roman government, from the Roman Empire, and they left lots of documents behind, they enjoyed writing, we have not a single instance of any person after being placed on the cross being taken down in order to be buried. And the reason why is because it defeated the entire purpose of being crucified in the first place. You wouldn't go through all that trouble to hoist somebody up in the air if you were going to take them down directly after they died. Jesus is the only person we know of in history who was taken down off of the cross and placed in a tomb. And does it make any sense to you that a poor Jewish peasant from Nazareth, and we talked about Nazareth, 
at the beginning of September. It's in the middle of nowhere. Does it make any sense to you that Jesus would be the only person in history to be given such treatment? Now, I'm not saying it's impossible, because what we read in the Gospel is that some guy, Joseph of Arimathea, he pays Pilate off and says, hey, can I take him down? Is that possible? Sure. Is it likely? Not really. And so more than likely what happened was, after Jesus died, he was left on the cross. And when his bones had fallen to the ground, some soldiers, as they would do periodically, they collected these bones, and then they would place them into a mass grave. Some evidence that supports this point of view in the New Testament is that the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul, just so you know, he wrote all of the earliest documents we have in the New Testament. Those documents, they actually predate the gospel that we read here today. Those documents, they never once mention Jesus' burial. Now, Paul, he talks about crucifixion all over the place, but he never mentions Jesus being buried in a tomb. And you want to know why? Because Paul knew what crucifixion was all about. He saw it all the time, and he knew that people were left up there. And you want to know the other reason why he didn't do it? It's because Christianity does not revolve around Jesus' burial. Christianity revolves around two distinct events. Jesus' death, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. And that is what we need to talk about next. Our last scripture reading today comes from Mark 16, 1 through 8. And it says, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? And when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The word of the Lord. In ancient Greece, there was a belief that a swan, having been silent for most of its life, right in the moments before death, would sing a beautiful song. This became known in common vernacular as a swan song, and today we use the term to refer to someone who is giving their last performance before retirement or death. Jesus' last words before he dies are, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That word forsaken means to feel abandoned. And Christians have puzzled over this phrase for millennia because it would seem that in the moments before he dies, Jesus feels as though he is abandoned by God. And this is hard for Christians because Christians feel that Jesus is the full embodiment of God's love. And how can a man who totally embodies God's love feel abandoned by God? And the truth is we'll never know. 
Did he expect something different to happen up on the cross? Did he believe God would save him? Did he believe his death was in vain? We don't know. But what we do know is that following his death, something profound happened to Jesus' followers, his disciples, his family, his friends. They experienced something that changed their lives forever. Jesus appeared to them following his death. Now this appearance, it's commonly referred to as the resurrection. And I've told you in the past that the Bible portrays the resurrection in three distinctly different ways. One way that it is portrayed is in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. And that's a physical resurrection where Jesus is a body that's walking around. He can have breakfast with you in the morning and drink coffee. That's how it's portrayed there. The second way that it is portrayed is in portions of John's Gospel where he is portrayed as a spirit or a ghost. He can walk through walls. He disappears all of a sudden from where he is. And then the final way that it is portrayed is in Paul's letters. And Paul says that Jesus appeared to him. It's almost as if he's describing a vision that hundreds of people saw at once. I tend to agree with Paul's version, but you can pick whichever one you like because they're all in there. And this ambiguity around Jesus' resurrection, it is a big reason why Mark ends his gospel in the way that he does. Just to be clear, Mark's gospel ends at 16.8. And what it says is, after these women, they go into the tomb, they enter in, and they see that Jesus, he's been resurrected from the dead, and it says that they flee from the tomb for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Later editors to the New Testament didn't particularly like the way that ending turned out. And so they decided, you know what, we're going to spruce it up a little bit. And so two separate editors actually added two different endings to this gospel. But we know from the earliest versions we have that it ends right here at 16.8. So if it ends at 16.8, what that tells us is that we never get to see the resurrection. We only get to hear about it. And Mark does this because it's not entirely clear what the disciples saw. But what is clear is that it was so impactful, so important to them, that it actually caused them to continue on with Jesus' movement. Indeed, whatever it was that they experienced, it's the reason why we are sitting here in this sanctuary 2,000 years later. Had Jesus' last words ended at his swan song, the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then we would not be sitting here in this sanctuary together. I'd be a rabbi, you all be Jewish. It'd be a totally different kind of thing. (laughs) But the fact is, we are here. And that moment, that experience, is what made Jesus the black swan that would change history forever. It's the moment that would cause his movement to go on because his words did not end at his death, but rather were given to us to complete. Today we are playing Mozart's Requiem, and I want to thank the choir specifically. You all came out. It's summertime. Thank you for being here. I know you're usually on your break, but I very much appreciate that you are here helping out with this. And it's a beautiful thing today. Trust me, if I was doing any of the music, you all would have left a long time ago. (laughs) It's a good thing we have people who know what they're doing here with this. We are doing Mozart's Requiem. It is one of the last pieces that Mozart ever wrote during his lifetime. In fact, he would not be able to finish the piece before 
he died. This piece was commissioned by a man named Franz von Walsegg, and Walsegg had the piece made in honor of his late wife, Anna, who had died unexpectedly. It is a church mass. Walsegg, he had a penchant for paying composers to create a work for him, and then he would claim the composition as his own work. And so his intention was to get Mozart's Requiem, pawn it off as his own, and then he was going to play it every year on the anniversary of his wife's death. But Mozart died before he could complete it. And Walsegg, he had paid Mozart half the commission up front. He had finished somewhere, we're not entirely sure, between 60-70% of it. We're not, we don't really know how much he had filled in. It's unclear. But what is clear is that following his death from rheumatic fever, Mozart's wife, Constance, she was looking for all kinds of sources of income because Mozart was no longer around. And one place where she knew income was available was by finishing off the Requiem so she could collect the second half of the commission. So, the first person she went to was Mozart's good friend, a man by the name of Joseph von Ebler, and she asked him, can you finish it off? And so what he did was, he worked on the Dies Ira all the way through the Lacrimosa, which we have played up to this point. He spruced it up, got it in order, but at that point he hands the manuscript back to Constance and says he cannot finish it. We don't know why, but we can assume that it probably has something to do with the fact that he respected Mozart so much that he didn't feel he could live up to the standard. Constance, however, was undeterred. She then took the manuscript, handed it over to another person. This man was Franz Sussmeyer. And Sussmeyer, he was a copyist for Mozart. He worked on copying scores. And so Sussmeyer, he takes the manuscript and notes that Mozart had around it, and he was able to finish off in about 100 days, which is a very short period of time for a piece like this. So what we are hearing today is technically the result of three different composers. Mozart, the musical master himself, and two of his disciples. Now what's interesting is most musical scholars agree that what we are hearing today is pretty close to what Mozart himself would have done had he been able to finish the piece on his own. Indeed, many musical scholars say that this is the most beautiful piece of music that has ever been written by a master and his students. And it is with that that we return to Mark's Gospel. You know, Mark's Gospel, it ends in kind of a strange way. Wouldn't you agree? These women, they're going to the tomb, they get all the way there, and they want to anoint Jesus' body with spices, and they come and they find that the stone has been rolled away. They go inside of the tomb, and there's this young man sitting there. And Jesus' body is gone, and the young man tells him, Hey, guess what? Jesus has risen from the dead. And then gives them an instruction. He says, Hey, go out. I want you to go tell the disciples that Jesus has risen, and that he's gone ahead of you. He's going to meet you in Galilee. But what happens? The women, they don't follow his instructions. They go out, they leave, and what does it say? It says, they say nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So Mark's gospel, it ends with the message of Christianity not being spread. So after going through the entire gospel, from the baptism, and we hear the teachings, and the healings, and the miracles, and we get to the Last Supper, the crucifixion, the resurrection, we get to the end of the whole thing, and they drop the ball. 
That's a great way to end it, isn't it? And that's why some people came in and said, well, I think we need to correct this. Obviously, Mark, he must have run out of ink at the end, so, you know, we'll correct it for him. But when you understand why he ends it the way that he does, you realize that it's absolutely genius. And it's why I love Mark's gospel more than any of the other gospels. You see, the reason why Mark ends it in the way that he does with these women not living up to their expectations, not doing their job, is because he has now laid the responsibility in your hands. You are the one being a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, who must now take the manuscript and finish it off. This entire year, we have been looking at Mark's gospel, and the disciples just don't seem to get it. They're so stupid. They don't understand what's going on. You know, they don't know who Jesus is. They just keep looking at everything, and they're just totally dumbfounded. But you know what? You have been reading the gospel all through the year, and we've come to the end, and you do know what it's all about. You do get what's going on, and you have been entrusted with finishing the final movement. Because in Mark's gospel, you are what make Jesus' gospel complete. You are the one who goes out and becomes Jesus' hands in the world. You are the one who goes and serves the least and the lost. You are the one who goes out and helps God's kingdom come to earth. You are the one who carries the knowledge in your heart that we can experience the resurrection here and now, in this place, in this time. You are the reflection of God's love to other people in the world. You are the one who represents Jesus, since Jesus is no longer here to represent himself. Mark's gospel ends with you. Because as long as Jesus' message is alive within you, then his movement will never die. And so I end this morning by saying, may Jesus' message live on inside of you. And may you do your part to spread that message so that Jesus can continue to be the black swan that changes the world for the better. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.